Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 76. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And this week's film of choice, of course, it's Pinocchio, celebrating a huge milestone birthday, 80 years old. Yes, that was released in theaters on February 7th, 1940. Maybe it's because I remember going to the movies and seeing it on re-release as a kid, but I have a problem accepting the fact that this film is 80 years old. Yeah, because to me, like, when you think of Snow White, it feels its age. Right. And this was the next animated feature right after it, but it, for whatever reason, in my mind, doesn't feel as old. Maybe because this one was a lot bigger in my childhood than Snow White was. Same, yeah. I And it's weird. It's one of the ones that's like regrettably fallen by the wayside because I don't recall rewatching it a lot as a teenager. But when I was a kid, I must have loved this even more than I realized because I remember when I would go to my grandparents' house, um, my great uncle had made like a carving of Pinocchio and it was hanging outside in the tree. I don't I don't think he made it for me. I think he made it for my mom. But I remember always looking out the kitchen window and seeing that there. And then I also had, um, I still have it. It's a Pinocchio music box with Jiminy Cricket like sitting on his hat. And it plays When You Wish Upon a Star. And I love it. I don't know that this film, though, when you're a teenager, has the rewatchability that it does when you're a child and when you're an adult. Because it is a coming-of-age story, but I feel like when you're a teenager, it is a little below you. That's actually a really good point, because it was originally a book. Um, it was written by an Italian author, and it came out, it was released as a periodical, actually. It wasn't released in one whole volume. So really, they were these cautionary tales to tell you how to behave. So you're right. It it does hit home a lot more when you're a child as, you know, when you're a teenager, when hopefully you've learned these lessons. Well, some people do, and then some people never do. <laughs> That's very true. The only thing I know about that book or those series of vignettes or stories as it were is that Jiminy Cricket died oh <gasps> what you didn't know that I didn't oh I'm sorry well you don't have to read the book now oh I don't want to live in that world no Jiminy can't die well he does in the book you know what's funny before we get into our review um on a recent episode of Detour um, Brendan said something that really hit home to me and, um, they were talking about Peter Pan's magic flight, which, you know, they spent a whole episode reviewing the ride and the story that it tells. And it was a wonderful episode, which is completely wasted on us because we still cannot understand what the appeal is behind that ride. But great job, Brendan and Catherine. You did awesome. Anyway, Brendan said something that really hit home with me that sometimes he forgets that Tinkerbell is from Peter Pan because she has such a strong association with the park. And I felt that way too, especially because she's not really represented 
in that ride. And I associate her more with flying out of the castle before the fireworks. And I feel like Jiminy Cricket sort of feels victim to that same thing because he's so prominent in the parks that sometimes, and I really hope this isn't happening more now, the further away we get from this film and the longer since its release date, I I hope that, you know, kids today are recognizing where he comes from. Rather than just being Jiminy Cricket, a Disney character. And the song, of course. Of course, right. But that song has become so iconic for the company. And of course, the film is iconic for the company. So I'm not sure that as far removed as we are from the original release of this film, that we were that we're ever going to be really that far removed from the film in totality. Um, at least I hope not. I don't think we will, though. But while we're at it here, I mean, I think we should just get into breaking down the film and giving the plot of the film. Because I don't know that there's much else we can say before we actually talk about what happens in this film. When the film opens... We meet Jiminy Cricket, who travels around singing and one night finds himself at Geppetto's woodshop. Jiminy warms himself by the fire, looking around at all of the carvings, and watches as Geppetto finishes his latest work, a marionette. Geppetto paints a face on the puppet, which he names Pinocchio. He then says goodnight to his cat Figaro, his goldfish Cleo, and settles into bed. But before he can sleep, he wishes upon a star for Pinocchio to become a real boy. Geppetto's wish is granted by the Blue Fairy, who breaks and enters the woodshop and promises that if Pinocchio can prove himself brave, truthful, and unselfish, he will become a real boy. To guide him, she dubs Jiminy Cricket as his conscience to teach him right from wrong. Pinocchio, still adjusting to his new life, knocks over Geppetto's tools and wakes him. At first, Geppetto can't believe his wish came true, but immediately celebrates by turning on all of his music boxes and dancing. He then realizes Pinocchio must go to school and puts him to bed. The next morning, Geppetto sends Pinocchio off to school with a book in one hand, an apple in the other, and not one piece of advice, like don't talk to strangers. Before he can get very far, Pinocchio meets Jay Worthington Foulfellow and Gideon, who see the potential to make a lot of money using Pinocchio to perform and convince him to become an actor. Despite Jiminy's protests, Pinocchio is led to the theater, where Stromboli draws a sellout crowd to see the only marionette without strings. After the show, Stromboli counts his money and tells Pinocchio they are hitting the road to perform to different crowds and locks him in a cage so he can't escape. Jiminy goes to check on Pinocchio, and when he finds him in this predicament, he tries to break the lock, but he can't. The Blue Fairy comes to their rescue and frees Pinocchio, even after he lies about how he ended up here, but promises to run straight home and be a good boy. Meanwhile, Falfellow and Gideon have met with the coachman, who offer him more money than Stromboli does in exchange for kidnapping little boys and taking them to Pleasure Island. They catch Pinocchio on his way back to the workshop and convince him to go to Pleasure Island, where he befriends Lampwick and follows his lead playing pool, smoking cigars, and drinking. Jiminy has had enough of Pinocchio not listening to his conscience and leaves him again, but quickly comes back to his rescue when he finds out that the boys in Pleasure Island are turning into donkeys. Pinocchio and Jiminy watch in horror as Lampwick turns, and they make a run for it after Pinocchio sprouts his own ears and tail. Pinocchio and Jiminy make it back to Geppetto's workshop to find their home empty. The Blue Fairy helps them out again by sending a message to let them know Geppetto went out looking for Pinocchio and was swallowed by a whale named Monstro. They have been living in his stomach, and Pinocchio goes to their rescue. Pinocchio and Jiminy sink to the ocean floor and intentionally get eaten by Monstro to find Geppetto. 
Once Pinocchio finds Geppetto, he cleverly thinks to build a fire to make Monstro sneeze and push them out. They barely escape as Monstro tries to consume them again and crash on the beach where it appears Pinocchio has drowned. Geppetto takes his marionette back home where the Blue Fairy visits again. Geppetto's rescue proved Pinocchio brave, truthful, and unselfish, so she transforms him into a real boy. So that is uh, the very abridged version of the story of Pinocchio, and the I can't even call it an Easter egg, but in the very beginning, when Jiminy Cricket, we, we sort of open on a book. It's not that blue velvet, but it is the storybook of Pinocchio, and Jiminy Cricket goes to open it. And on the bookshelf, next to the Pinocchio book, um, is Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan. That was kind of mind-blowing to see, because this was years before those films were even in production. I believe at that point he had the rights to Alice. Well, he had done the Alice shorts. He did the Alice shorts, but they also worked on Alice for about 10 years right. before they were able to release it. I think that's why Cinderella came out prior to it. They were working on them on or about the same time, and Cinderella just got done first. But looking back on it now, many years later, uh, it is a fun little Easter egg. It certainly is. And what I love about this scene, too, is that, of course, we are going to talk about the music because this is one of the most iconic songs in the canon. Um, but When You Wish Upon a Star starts during the credits and it carries you right into the film. And I can't think of another film that does that where you get the main character singing and a transition like that. Off screen. Exactly. Yeah, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head either that's an interesting observation and I think that the animation here right in the open is absolutely stunning and I do love the fine display of the multi-plane camera that we love to talk about so much but specifically the hopping that is supposed to because at this point you're sort of looking through the eyes of oh Jiminy Cricket. Oh my gosh it's incredible absolutely brilliant and 80 years later still still holds up very very well i'm not even sure how they did that because what was revolutionized in this film where snow white they just had the uh you know the four tiers stacked right. one on top of each other to give it the depth in this one they also started sliding them left and right which you see more prominently when they're walking through the village when he's on his way to school. Um, so that was kind of a new trick that they were able to come up with. But I really have no idea how they pulled this one off. And I'm happy that I don't know. In my mind, it's just movie magic and it's Walt Disney and his nine old men who were sort of the nine young men at the time at their finest. And I'm happy living in that world where I don't need to break that down. But... It is incredibly impressive, nonetheless. The other thing I find really impressive is the workshop. I think this is some of the best world building that they've done. Because before we even see Geppetto, we get a really good idea of who he is. Jiminy's kind of warming his tush by the fire, and he's looking around at all these carvings, and... um. They're just so intricate and so detailed. Like even, you know, Figaro's bed has, I don't know if you noticed, the little mice carved into the footer. Yeah. Um, 
and the litter pan is right next to it as well. Yes, but it's like built into the bed because presumably Geppetto carved all of this. But even, I mean, just the music boxes and the cuckoo clocks, they each tell like their own little story and it's just so clever they must have had so much fun with that it's incredibly intricate i will say though i i am um i'm not gonna say i'm taken out of it because there's very little that happens in this movie where i'm taken out of the magic of this film Mm -hmm. but one piece of sort of bad dialogue i suppose i guess you could categorize it as bad dialogue is he's got all those cuckoo clocks on the wall. They're all going <laughs> off. They all have the time red on the face in addition to the cuckoos. And Geppetto looks at it and goes, I wonder what time it is. And then needs to pull out his pocket watch. There's a hundred clocks on the wall. Oh, How so did you not know what time it was? I don't think that that's bad dialogue. I think that's humor. Was it? I don't know. Maybe it. Maybe the humor was just lost on me. It's the delivery isn't like a punchline. Well, I guess, and I maybe that's it. Maybe that's the big problem for me. And I guess maybe it's just sort of a force of habit thing for him because, you know, we're gonna we're gonna get into the character a lot of more a lot more. But you know, Geppetto's this lonely old man. He talks out loud a lot, so I I kind of feel like he's just kind of got his routine. It's what he does. And and maybe because he created all of the clocks, maybe he just doesn't see them as, you know, something that he's using for himself. It's not a tool so much as it is an accessory. Exactly. And I think that the, the inspiration for Doc Brown's shop in Back to the Future, <laughs> and similarly, it's the opening scene of Back to the Future with all of those clocks on the wall, and he's got the machine that feeds Einstein his dog food and the coffee pot and the toaster, they're all timed with all of these clocks on the wall that are exactly 25 minutes slow, by the way. They'll tell you that in the movie. But I would imagine that was the inspiration for this. See, that would have been a better way to deliver that punchline of I wonder what time it was is if he's got all these clocks and they're all wrong. Right. And maybe that's my basis of comparison, which in a way really isn't fair because the two movies are so vastly different in both context and in their time period. I mean, back in 1940, you know, filmmaking was still very primitive, which I think is what makes so much of what they did here very impressive. And certainly there is no better example of that than when we see Pinocchio for the first time in this scene. One of the things that I remember most about watching this as a child is when Geppetto paints the face on. And I appreciate that so much more now because I feel like we're getting when he does specifically the stroke of the mouth, I feel like we're getting a behind the scenes look at the animators drawing. It's like as if you're watching Frank and Ollie. Yeah. And speaking of Frank and Ollie, both of them very heavily involved in the production of this film. And when you see Pinocchio moving for the first time, and it's before he's come to life, it's when Geppetto is manipulating him on the strings, the movements are absolutely incredible. To this day, it's some of the best animation ever done, and that was done by Frank Thomas. It's really mind-blowing to me, just the weight 
and the texture that they give Pinocchio. And I think a lot of that also comes too from very clever sound work that they have him kind of clomping around on the floor of the workshop. But what's most impressive to me about this is the strings and that they were able to animate Pinocchio but confine him because he's getting tangled up in his own strings. It's just, it's amazing. And when the strings get tangled, they don't just look like spaghetti. Right. Like it's very, for something that's tangled, it's completely cohesive and makes total sense. There's another really great shot in that sequence, too, where um, they do the effect of Pinocchio walking through Cleo's bowl because he's still yes. he's still in the strings. And that Frank Thomas did uh, freehand because they used a model for almost everything and they would draw from life. You know, we know this. They shot live action models first and then the animators would just kind of go in and mimic the movement with their pencils. But this, he just kind of did it off the cuff. He had to. Yeah, but it looks so realistic because if anybody has ever looked through a fishbowl or a glass of water at something in the distance and you see how the depth and the shape is manipulated, but they pull it off absolutely brilliantly here. No, and that was actually surprising to learn because I really thought that that would be the effects department. Yeah. And the scene is just so much fun with Geppetto dancing and Cleo's dancing and Figaro is sort of just over it and he kind of wants nothing to do with this whimsy. Cleo and Figaro do not get enough love. I agree. I think, you know, we haven't really gotten into characters yet, but they don't have any dialogue so, I'd, I mean, they're characters in the film, but not in the traditional sense that we'll talk about Jiminy Cricket and Geppetto and Pinocchio and Stromboli, et cetera, so forth. But they do so much comedically. They do so much for the story just in their facial expressions and in the way that they act. Again, a complete tip of the cap to the animators that brought these characters to life. For me, though, they were always so memorable. And I even have a Cleo shirt, which I remember when I found out at the Disney store, I was like, yes, please. Because I had never seen really any of these characters on a shirt before. And I remember wearing it around and like somebody had told me once that they recognized it and they were like, oh, that's a Disney character, right? And they could not tell me where it was from. Yeah, they probably think it's Finding Nemo. Probably. Because yeah. if you think about it, if you ask anybody who are Geppetto's pets, nine people out of ten are going to say Figaro, and they're not going to say anything after that. Most people forget about Cleo, yeah. which is a shame. Uh, to be honest with you, I had sort of forgotten about Cleo until we sat and watched this movie this week to get refreshed with it because it had been so long since I had watched it. You forget Cleo, you tell me Jiminy Cricket dies, you're batting a thousand here. I thought everybody knew that Jiminy Cricket died in the original book. Don't ever tell me how. Okay, you got it. You only had a hundred years to read the book. Sorry. You get through the dancing scene and, and then of course Geppetto has Figaro open the window and he sees the star, the wishing star, the star, starlight, star bright, first star I see tonight. And he wishes for Pinocchio to become a real boy. And it's 
a beautifully animated scene, but something that happens right before all this that you would never see today, smoking in bed. Geppetto is smoking a pipe tucked into his bed. He's also got an entire rack of pipes next to the bed. I don't know if you caught that. Yes, I did. I mean, the pipe thing, I'll give you that. He's a wood carver. Okay, fine. Well, well, yeah, you could smoke a wooden pipe. Yeah. It's not going to, it's not going to burst into flames. No. So, all right, fine. I have to imagine he's carved a lot of his own pipes. I'll give you that one. But yeah, the smoking in bed thing. But, you know, we said that when we reviewed Snow White as well. What did they do before bed? They got on their knees and they prayed. You'd never see that now. Not in a Disney film. And you wouldn't see smoking in bed in a Disney film. So where the animation and the music is so brilliant and beautiful and iconic, this is actually one of the few instances in this film where the film feels dated. I agree with you. It's just not something that I ever really noticed because they do such a good job of making you feel so bad for Geppetto. And like now you're totally in his corner. You're totally rooting for him, even though what he is wishing for is absurd. You just want him to be happy. Right. And we are reminded how absurd that is by Jiminy Cricket, who is trying to go to sleep and he overhears the wish of the marionette, marionette to come to life. And he says, well, that's not practical at all. Very tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Really, really, really funny. And um, just a small glimpse into Jiminy Cricket, because what's interesting about this entire scene here for Jiminy on his pers- from his perspective is we see Jiminy Cricket at the very beginning of the film when he opens the book as the Jiminy Cricket that we all know. He's in his tuxedo. He's got his umbrella. He's well-dressed. He's Pinocchio's conscience. Mm-hmm. But here, he's still a ragamuffin because that's sort of how he is introduced to the film. You sort of notice it when he first goes into the house, like his hat is torn and all that. But I feel like it's really driven home here because he kicks his shoes off and his socks are torn. Right. Um, And that was something that never really occurred to me when I was a child either because he says, I go around singing from hearth to hearth. So like it never you never really realize that he's homeless essentially yeah the only thing though that bothers me and it's minutia but there is a slight disconnect here the first thing he does when he goes inside is he warms himself so you have a fire going in the hearth and then Geppetto opens the window when he goes to sleep so I kind of got the idea that it was cold because Jiminy goes right to the fire so it's like how are you sleeping with the window open Right, it's not as if he um it's not as if he's got fire going because they lacked electricity. If Jiminy Cricket was that cold, yeah, I'll give you that. That does make an awful lot of sense. Whatever. It it gets a pass. There are nights where I sit on the couch bundled in blankets and then I go to bed and I'm like, Oh God. Right. Turn off the heat and let's open the windows. Let's talk about when the blue fairy arrives. Breaking and entering. Breaking and entering, sure. Um but her animation is absolutely brilliant. And what I like about her is she stands out from the other characters, not just because she's sort of translucent and a little bit iridescent, but 
her facial features. Because when you look at Geppetto and Pinocchio and, and really every other character in this film and compare them to, say, Snow White, the title character Snow White, who I had said looks very flat mm-hmm. in that film, they all have incredible detail and depth in the face. But here, the Blue Fairy looks a little flat. I feel like you see her in profile a lot. I don't feel like we ever see her straight on because she just comes in through the window. She's standing in front of the workbench. And then that's that's really it. You really don't get a lot of face time with her. And then likewise, when she comes back later to free him from the cage, it's mostly profile. Yeah, but she's animated beautifully. And I think it's significant that she is drawn differently and that she does stand out from the rest of them. But not in a way that disconnects with the rest of the film. Correct. She totally works in that universe. She does. She's beautiful. She looks like one of the actresses from the 40s. I mean, I shouldn't say one of the actresses. She pulls from quite a few of the actresses in the day. Yeah. Um, And her dress, it's absolutely gorgeous the way they pulled off that effect. And I mean, it's, it's almost like you see Elsa you know, drawing inspiration from that. Absolutely. It's also significant that she tells Pinocchio that it is up to him to become a real boy. And he sort of just assumes that it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's, oh yeah, the, the blue fairy came and I'm going to be a real boy. It's significant because it shows that he is a juvenile child because he's literally just been brought to life but he's naive and he's he's sort of gullible and it also shows that maybe he wasn't totally paying complete attention he sort of heard what he wanted to hear and just assumed it all to happen I think that's also a great juxtaposition of the character, though. It's because he's just brought to life and he knows how to walk and talk. So even as the viewer, you kind of forget that, like you said, he is so naive. Yeah, but I think it's significant in building everything that happens in the rest of the film here. And I think that, you know, Disney for the longest time was known for making family films. And then for a while, I think they sort of got away from the family aspect and they really just made movies for children. But I think this film was still a family film because an adult could sit there and watch it and enjoy it for what it was and enjoy it for the lessons that it taught. But Disney was also very good about throwing in jokes for the parents. Like when... They dance and they play. And again, the animation, absolutely spectacular. The animation spectacular throughout, so I'm not even going to keep saying it. But when Geppetto does put Pinocchio to bed, and he tells him, we have to go to bed. Why? And he gives him the answer. And you have to go to school tomorrow. Why? why? And he keeps answering, and then it was, why? And then he finally just says, because. I absolutely love that line. It's like Pinocchio goes from being a toddler to five years old in a span of about 10 minutes because he's kind of still wobbly on his legs. And then every child goes through the why phase when they start, you know, questioning the world around them. Yeah, it's like Uncle Buck. I'm a kid. That's my job. (laughs) 
What I love that they did here, too, um, we're kind of jumping around a little bit, but I do want to jump back before yeah. we move on. Yeah. Um, you know, we're talking about that there's such a great foundation here for the lessons that Pinocchio is going to learn. I love that they also personified a conscience in Jiminy. Yes. And when you're a kid, you latch onto that idea because, you know, of course, Jiminy is a very likable character, but it's a play on, you know, when you have like the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other. So I think that's very easy for kids to connect with, that there's always going to be something there telling you right from wrong. Um, I think it was such a clever way to give it more meaning. Right. And you give it a face and you give it a look because otherwise Pinocchio is either going to be acquiring tips and advice from strangers he meets along the way or he's going to have an inner monologue. And can you really watch a character, or at least, you know, in 1940, could you watch a character walk around and have nothing but his inner monologue for 90 minutes? Right, especially because he is so easily led. Right. And I think as the movie goes on, and, and we're going to dive into it a little bit more here, without having something personified that could get fed up and just walk away and say, that's it, I've had it, I've had enough. And then there's a consequence for that because he's not there keeping an eye on him. You lose that with an inner monologue, and I think you lose a lot of the drama that exists in this film without it. Exactly, and it's funny that you say that too because that was something that until we watched it this time around, I never realized how many times Jiminy actually bails on him and gives up so easily. Yeah, it happens quite a few times, more than I remember. Yeah, I mean, that's it. Pinocchio is in these situations where he is about to make the wrong decision, and then Jiminy almost lets it happen. Yeah, like, all right, go learn for yourself. And and that's what's so funny about him being personified, because that's not what he was supposed to do. And I think, you know, there were parts of me that thought it was a little bit disjointed that the Blue Fairy keeps coming back back but I think that's why it's because she's almost got to teach the both of them what to do and it's like she keeps returning and it's like oh let me go check on these knuckleheads she's got you know such a more maternal role because since Jiminy is not sticking by him and he he just kind of you know takes his ball and goes home she's got to keep coming back to make sure they're both okay and it's interesting that you bring that up as well because Jiminy Cricket, at least in the beginning of the film, is sort of a selfish character because, talk about breaking and entering, he's entering a home that does not belong to him, and he is an insect. So nobody likes the idea of having bugs in their house. Let's just call it what it is. But he's going to do it anyway so that he can get in and he can get warm and he can have a comfy bed to sleep in at night. And then when he finds out that he's going to be the conscience, he's like, oh, can I have this? And can I have a badge, a gold one? And it, it, like he, he's fixated on the material aspect of what is in this for me, that it's not until he grows as a character and he matures as a character that you see that he is learning things along the way as well. And again, you lose that if you don't have conscience personified the irony too is that when we meet him he says that he travels around singing so he is a performer which is really interesting when you cut to the first fork in the road where he meets Falfellow and Gideon again forget a 
they're not forgettable to me, but I guarantee you nobody knows their real names. Everybody always calls him Honest John, but that's not Falfellow's real name. But for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to call him Honest John because to me, that's what he's always been. And he comes in and he is that sly fox. And I love how he is drawn because his clothes are torn and they're patched. And I think that it helps illustrate that he has fallen on hard times. And I think that also illustrates his motivation for money and how far he's willing to go to get back on top. You get a lot of backstory with no backstory at all. That's, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say is that you have so much character development with very, very few lines. I mean, really, I think the film that masters that the most is probably Dumbo because Dumbo has no speaking lines. But thinking about all of the characters, very little dialogue, but you know all about them. Yeah, I mean, the reality of it is he only ever sings, talks about how he needs money, talks about how he's going to scheme, or actually acts out his scheming. That's really all of the dialogue that that exists for Honest John. And Gideon has no dialogue at all, which was not the original plan. Yeah, there's one, well, it's not even really dialogue. It's a hip, It's a hiccup voiced by Mel Blanc because originally Gideon was going to converse with Honest John and they made a change but at that point Mel Blanc had already recorded a lot of the dialogue up to and including the hiccup so he hiccups a couple I think it's once um, and they leave it in it's unbelievable I mean when you think about it like that I definitely think it served the story to have Gideon as the wordless henchman and just to carry out I'll give it to you honest John's bidding yeah you know he's a sidekick and you're gonna lose well I can't say that you'd lose the goofy sidekick because I can only imagine what Mel Blanc would have brought to that role and that this is one case where I kind of wish we had sacrificed a little bit of story just to get that character especially because I think like, Honest John is so business, and he's going to stick to his plan and his scheme, and he's going to carry it out. So to to get the foil to that, I think would have been really funny. And you also needed him there as comic relief, Gideon, that is, because otherwise you're watching a kidnapper over and over again, because that's really what Honest John is doing both times he interacts with Pinocchio. Yeah, it's the only two interactions, and both times he completely derails it. I mean, you do get a little bit of the comedy because... Uh, Jiminy Cricket is hiding in Honest John's hat and then Gideon takes the mallet out and he smacks him. Um, But I I would have rather heard that in the voice. Yeah, I think you just needed to lighten the mood a little bit more because otherwise I think it would have been a bit too dark just in terms of content when they actually accomplish their goal twice of basically kidnapping poor Pinocchio. Right. And this is also an important scene because it further illustrates, I talked about how naive Pinocchio is, and 
this further illustrates that he will just listen to everybody except his conscience. And because, you know, uh, Jiminy Cricket is trying to tell him, no, ignore them, you have to go to school, you have to do this, you have to do this. But now Pinocchio has it in his mind, I'm going to be an actor, and this sounds great, and it's just what I'm going to do, and I know better. So similarly, that's where you need a personified conscience, because without Pinocchio going against his conscience, you have no film. No, you're absolutely right, but that's what I, I was talking about before is the irony here is that it was okay for Jiminy to go and travel and sing and he's trying to implement in Pinocchio that that is not what he should be doing and it's but there's also a difference Pinocchio is a boy who's supposed to go to school right and Honest John and Gideon prevent him from doing that before we move on I know we've talked about the animation but this to me is one of the best parts of the whole film is where they're when they see Pinocchio for the first time, you know, he's going through the village. You've got the multiplane all over the place. It looks amazing. There's so much depth. There's so much movement as they're weaving through these streets. But even when Falfellow and Gideon catch up to him, Pinocchio is running on one side of the fence and they're on the other. So you even have a little bit of depth of feel there. It's just, the whole sequence just blows my mind. And then there are parts, though, where it bothers me because when he's singing an actor's life for me, they go so wide with it. Um, they forget to paint the whites of the eyes. Mm -hmm. And that might also be something that with technological advancements we see now that you might not have caught when it was originally released. Right. Because it's, you know, it's not going to be as sharp. But that is something that stands out a little bit. But the rest of it's amazing. So we get to the introduction of Pinocchio as an actor where he performs um, I've Got No Strings on Me and he's dancing without his strings and Stromboli is there and he's conducting the orchestra and, and, and you see the other marionettes. What I love here about the animation, other than the way that Pinocchio moves and the way that he interacts with the other marionettes because their their movements are as good as his was in the very beginning of the film. But Stromboli, the way he moves his body and his physical comedy and he kind of he like... He jiggles. He jiggles and he sashays a little bit, I think is absolutely brilliant. I think it looks great and I think, again, the timing of it all adds comedy and lightens the mood in a scene that really is very, very heavy. Yes, because it's, again, what we were talking about before with being tongue-in-cheek is that he's singing I've Got No Strings and he's got what he thinks is this newfound freedom that he's not attached to anything, but the irony is that he has never been more enslaved. Right. As soon as, and, and he doesn't know it yet. We know it as an audience, but he doesn't know it yet. But certainly as soon as he is thrown in that birdcage, it is so terribly sad, but wonderfully animated. And that was Ollie Johnson. The way that he got so much fear and confusion and pain. Because you can tell that Pinocchio is so upset because he believed that he could trust Stromboli. And he is so shocked 
that this has happened to him and that another person he believed he could trust is really out there to to harm him it is so beautifully animated and without that animation this entire scene to me falls flat because this is sort of the cherry on top this is what we build up to and it's sort of it's so beautifully done artistically too because it's not just the build up to that climax where he gets thrown into the cage but you also see Stromboli is getting more worked up and more worked up and more worked up so he and his attitude and his speech that builds to all of this happening too and it it's just done harmoniously i i don't know how else to say it no and not just with the emotion coming through in that scene too even because the carriage is bouncing pinocchio is getting flip-flopped around inside the cage it's the whole sequence is just amazing and you get the thunder and the lightning and he is just he is so helpless and Jiminy Cricket tries to break him out and he can't and it just seems so helpless and Jiminy Cricket says we're going to need a miracle and then you see the blue fairy come back in what has become probably the most significant scene in this film certainly one of the most significant scenes in the history of animation I put it up there with the Bellinati scene from Lady and the Tramp not just with Disney, though. I mean, this scene is iconic to film, period, yes. across the board. I mean, the, the f- phrase Pinocchio is used when someone's lying. Right. And Pinocchio just keeps digging himself deeper and deeper into that hole, and the nose is growing, and then you get the bird's nest with the eggs. And the lesson here is, the more you lie, the more the lie will stand out, as plain as the nose on your face, as the blue fairy will tell them. And she gets them out of it and says, you know, I can't I can't help you out any further. And we see Honest John again. And we see how he has no limits and how he certainly doesn't care because he knows these boys are being taken to Pleasure Island. And the look of shock on his face when the coachman tells him, you know, what happens, you know. He he knows Pleasure Island is a bad place, but as he's whispering to him what happens, he's just kind of like nodding his head like, oh, okay, all right. And he's totally all about it. And when he convinces Pinocchio and him and Gideon tell Pinocchio, you're allergic, you're sick, you need a vacation. I love that sequence so do I. with his with his diagnosis. I think that's, again, a forgettable scene, but I think it's... It's one of the most clever, you know, there's there's no real dialogue. He's making up words and pulling from words to make it sound like Pinocchio's sick. And he's writing out the prescription and he's, you know, kind of making up a little rhythm as he goes along. It's it's so brilliant. Yeah. And plays up on Pinocchio's gullibility and against Against his conscience again, (laughs) Pinocchio is off to Pleasure Island. And I love everything about Pleasure Island. I love the way it's animated. I love how they draw all of these bad children in. 
where you're going to smoke and you're going to drink and you're going to play pool and you're going to go into the rough house and you're going to start a fist fight and you could just have anything you want for free reminds me of, and again, you look at where inspiration is drawn, the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle live action film where Shredder is recruiting kids yeah. for the Foot Clan by letting them skateboard and giving them cigarettes and rewarding them for stealing and you can come here and have whatever you want. I think that so many films that came after this drew inspiration directly from this film. I mean, I've I've mentioned two, coincidentally, two very popular films in 80s pop culture. Drawing inspiration from a film that at the time was, you know, 45 years, in the, in the case of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, nearly 50 years earlier. Mm. And they're still doing it to this day. What I like, though, is that they didn't pull from here to do The Lost Boys. Because I think yes. that you could have done something very similar. So I like that the Lost Boys have their own thing. Like, this is not what they're about at all. Yeah. But they prey on kids that they know are going to behave this way. And I love the lesson of, well, you've made a jackass out of yourself. So we didn't do anything to you except bring you here and expose you for what you truly are. What a great lesson, I think, to teach a kid. Yeah, I mean, this film is just what I love about animation, period, is like we were talking about just a couple of seconds ago with the with the lying scene in the nose. It's that you take a simple expression and you just keep exaggerating it. And, you know, it's like you said with the jackass, they're, they're making it literal now. Listen, we've all made jackasses of ourselves at Pleasure Island. We've all been <laughs> to Pleasure Island at Walt Disney World. <laughs> For you kids, you now know it is Disney Springs, but we used to know it as Pleasure Island and some of the fantastic establishments that existed there, like 8-Tracks and the Adventurers Club. I there miss them all very much. There were rumors that they were going to actually do an island like where they had Discovery Island and where you could take the boat and you could go to Pleasure Island. I'd do it in a heartbeat. Absolutely. I highly doubt that this would ever happen nowadays, but... A gal can dream. Yeah. Oh, it'll never happen. Let's talk about... I know. You know what, though? We've talked about it a million times. Don't wear your drinking t-shirts to the Food and Wine Festival. We can send these people to an island to contain them. Yeah. I mean, usually they send them to, like, Nassau, Bahamas or something, or a Sandals Resort. But, yeah, I guess we could do that on Disney property. Um, I want to talk about the animation here specifically. When the boys start to turn into donkeys terrifying the, the whole thing is terrifying. lampwick before he is a donkey is terrifying yeah and you can see where after you've seen the movie and you know what's going to happen to him you can see where um they sort of made it a very easy easy transition to turn him into a donkey but it's i mean i i've always loved characters like that that sort of like i love when they do it in 101 dalmatians where they make the the pup look like the owner yes so this was kind of, I mean, 101 Dalmatians was much, much later. But here, yes, it's a very simple transition. Mm -hmm. Still terrifying, though. Still, it is. And, and it's unsettling because you see Lampwick is crying for his mother. You saw another boy earlier crying for his mother. Um, and they just want to go home. But it's too late for them. That but is also voiced by Pinocchio. 
the the child actor who plays Pinocchio does Alexander the oh, donkey. I thought he sounded, who's not fully turned. I thought he sounded familiar. But I think the scariest part about this is not even so much Lampwick as a donkey. I know people get they find it unnerving when he's kicking and when he's making noise and he's so scared. To me, it's when the hands turn into hooves. Yep. And they start it with the shadow. Yes. So you don't even get the full effect. And like they could have just left it at that and and cut away and it would have still been awful. But then, no, you get to see the whole thing play out. Right. And then Pinocchio starts to turn and now Jiminy has come back for him, you know, and then they eventually escape and, and find their way home. But something else that I almost completely overlooked here, you want to talk about uh, something that maybe dates the film a little bit. And I understand it, it lends itself to the story is that you see children smoking. You see children drinking beer. And it works for this film. And when, when they eventually do a live-action remake, because let's be real, they're going to, it'll work for that as well. But because people are so sensitive with how things are presented to children nowadays. I mean, you get a disclaimer that there's tobacco in the film when you watch it mm. on Disney+. Plus. It's just not something you would see anymore. I mean, when you think about it, the whole thing is almost ridiculous, you could say. This is such an elaborate operation for a kidnapping. Yeah. Um, But you're right. Yeah, that is something. And they have... I mean, there's been a million retellings of Pinocchio. It's kind of like Cinderella where they're not necessarily remaking the Disney one. They're just doing the adaptation of the book. Um, they did one, I think it was for the Sunday night movie. Wasn't wasn't Drew Carey Geppetto at some point? I think so. Am I crazy? And again, didn't they do one when where Jonathan Taylor Thomas plays Pinocchio? Are we thinking of the same one? We may be. I mean, this this has 90s goodness written all over it. Of course it does. And that would make sense in the timeline because if he voiced Simba and then they did, yeah, it's probably the same and one. And if it was on the Sunday movie, they were both on ABC at the time, so they both had ABC contracts because you had Home Improvement and the Drew Carey show if we're talking about the same movie. Well, and we can barely remember this as is, so I don't really remember how they handle it, but it was made for television, so I'm sure they skirted around it a little bit. Um, we're going to have to see if that's on Disney Plus somewhere and, and hunt that one down. I'm sure it won't be that hard to find. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, regardless that it's been done already, I'm sure they're going to do another iteration in this, you know, from 2017 on with all of the live action remakes that they're doing. What what can we call this era? The live action renaissance? Uh, Renaissance is not quite the We're out of word. ideas. <laughs> yes. Okay. Fine. We'll just call it we're out of ideas. <laughs> they, they're going to have to address it in some way. Maybe they don't smoke and drink beer, but maybe they're gambling or something. But I want to see them smoke and drink beer. That's the thing. It's like if you're going to do a live action remake, I want to see a remake of the film as it was. The, I can tell you right now they're not going to smoke. But I, I mean, not. like. If Harry Potter can have butterbeer, then yeah, g give me something foamy in that glass. Sure. Do you have anything else here before we move on to their return to the shop? Quick park side note. Okay. Because this 
scene, I've said it 12 times, it, it terrified me. It terrified me as a kid, and I'd be lying if I told you I wasn't disturbed by it now. But we went to the parks, and we went to the parks. We were on vacation in Disney in Florida, and I want to say it was the Main Street Electrolyte Parade. Okay. Um, because it, it was rare. This wasn't like a regular occurrence, but they do have uh, a Pinocchio float. And then as the street performers, they had the, I, I don't even know what you would call them. They were the, they were the boys, but they were like halfway transitioned into donkeys. Okay. So as I'm, as if I'm not already terrified enough, this one, my hat's off to you cast member. I don't know who you are, but it was amazing. So they, when there was like a break in the music, there was just like ever so slightly a beat. And one of the cast members would squawk in between like a donkey. And I mean, it added so much to his character, but I'm telling you, I was standing there like in front of the castle in the happiest place on earth. And I was terrified. And this was three years ago, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) when they get back to the shop, you don't really grasp the passage of time. You don't know how long Pinocchio has been missing for. Fair you point. just know that Geppetto has left to go find him and dinner was on the table and the butter is melting on the fish and he tells Figaro he can't eat and Cleo has a piece of cake in her fishbowl and they're not to eat anything until he comes back with Pinocchio. Beautifully drawn. Absolutely By the way, the food stunning. is not animated. It's it's like part of the painted set, but it's beautiful. But when Pinocchio, who has now sprouted ears and a tail and, and got out before he turned full donkey, he and Jiminy get back and the lights are out in the workshop and there are cobwebs on everything. So we don't know exactly how long they've been gone and how long it took them to get to Pleasure Island, but... You can assume it's got to be at least a week or two. See, I feel like this is another one of those disconnects because, I mean, maybe we don't know exactly how many performances he had with Stromboli, but when Stromboli leaves town, he passes right by Geppetto. So I always kind of thought that that was his first night away. Yeah, so do I. Because Pinocchio was, he says, I'm going to go run home and tell my father. And that's when Stromboli throws him into the cage. Um, so that's like a day. But you're right. I think they play with the timeline a little bit when he actually goes to Pleasure Island. Because I think the meeting with Honest John takes place that same night. Yeah, because he, he gets them on the way home. It's really, was it the morning after? Was it daylight? Because Honest John and Gideon meet with the coachman at night. I don't recall. It's right after I got no strings on me. So maybe it is that night. I, I think, think it's the same night Pinocchio gets freed and goes home. Right, because I think, yes, because I think the coachman says the coach leaves at midnight. Right, and then, the yeah, and Geppetto made this big dinner for his first night. Yeah, so we're talking about 24 hours here. I don't know exactly how long he's at Pleasure Island. I mean, maybe they, maybe it is supposed to be like a time warpy thing, or maybe, you know, they were just trying to 
give us a visual that Geppetto was gone. But like you do that with the empty bed. You do that with Figaro not being there. You do that with, you know, the the dust ring around where Cleo's bowl was. You didn't need all the cobwebs to do it. Right. And the blue fairy sends a dove with a note to tell Pinocchio and uh, Jiminy that um, Geppetto is alive, but he was swallowed by Monstro the Whale. And he is in the stomach of the whale at the bottom of the sea. And they leave to go find him. And again, the animation, incredible here. Not just because it's beautifully drawn, but what they were able to accomplish here that they did so well throughout this film was manipulate movement, manipulate gravity. Because you see Jiminy Cricket and Pinocchio as they're underwater. And Jiminy Cricket puts a rock down his pants and Pinocchio ties a rock to his tail. And you see how they're sort of struggling walking against the water and the way that the fish are animated and the way they move is absolutely fantastic. And when you look at a film like Finding Nemo and you see what they've been able to do um, as the years have gone on, I think that the animation here, especially with those, you know, with the sea life at least, I think it completely holds up. I think it's absolutely fantastic. But It's incredible. The way that they made it so lifelike the way that you would move through water it's you're walking against water you don't walk through water the way you walk on the sidewalk there's there's a tension there's a pressure there is that little bit holding you back and the fact that they were able to accomplish this and make it look so real is absolutely outstanding i think this is another instance too where the sound editing is very clever and also lends to it because even though you know their talk their their speaking is all garbled because they're underwater mm-hmm. i think that also adds to the feeling of it being slowed down and everything just dragging out and like you said that that resistance when you're walking in the water i feel like that it it plays hand in hand with it so well when we went to go see this film in its re-release in the late 80s might have even been the early 90s i remember my brother was terrified of Monstro. He was petrified to the point that he hid under his seat in the movie theater. Oh my goodness. So it had to be the early 90s then. It had to be like 91 or 92. Because otherwise my brother would have been way too small. He would have been in diapers. So it had to be like 1991 or 1992 that we saw it. But hiding under his seat. For the sake of his pride, let's leave it at that. Because if he was any older, he might not be too happy with you. He's unhappy with me more times than not. But I'm. But yes, fine. We're we're gonna put it in that timeline. But not the thing that most people are scared of. I wasn't scared of Monstro. I can't speak for you though. We know what I was scared of. That was Lampwick. But you both see, before and after. Yeah. Huh? But you see inside the the stomach of the whale, and you see how broken down the boat is that Geppetto rolled in on and the way that they escape it again it's all done very very well what's impressive here about the way it was done was really how realistic they made the water and even the water that was splashing towards the screen for 1940 it's absolutely stunning and brilliant and completely it's I don't think it's recognized for the achievement that it really was 
Yeah, and not just for the water too, but Monstro himself. I mean, I wasn't scared of him, but I always had a fascination with him. I mean, he he's just incredible. And when you compare it to like, look at the way that they did the donkeys. They look very cartoony. This whale looks so realistic. And I think that that was such a smart choice because it he has to be terrifying. Otherwise, if you make him cartoony, if you if you do the equivalent of what you did with these donkeys or like what you did with Honest John and gave him all of the characteristics or even like Jiminy, he's he's a fun little cricket. You can't do that here because then it's going to make the escape seems too easy. Right. But you get back to the workshop after they do escape. You you set up their escape before with him sneezing, and we believe that Pinocchio has drowned. Again, our second Disney animated film that the company had done, and twice now we've got a corpse on a bed. <laughs> um, but, and I mean, this is, I think, part of a, a bigger conversation. It's that... You know, Pinocchio was never, I don't want to say he wasn't really alive because the Blue Fairy technically did give him life, but it's, he wasn't a real boy yet. So, A, how did Pleasure Island have the same effect on him that it did on all these other boys where he still grew the ears and a tail? And maybe that's why he didn't fully transform. But B, he can't actually really die yet. Right, because he's just a wooden boy. But I guess that's it, is that he did lose his privilege. Because up until that point where he went to prove himself, he did misbehave. Right. So I guess it's that he lost his privilege of of having this chance. Yeah, but corpse on a bed, it's it's formulaic, (laughs) Mr. Disney. That and the dancing, it's formulaic. No, joking aside, though, um, when he eventually does come to life, again, the animation looks great. And you, you get sort of a rehash of that first scene with with all the cuckoo clocks and the music boxes. And the music boxes, they, they're they all doing their own thing, but they kind of work hand in hand in making this syncopated beat and this this song that they dance to. and I like before that, though, where he just sets them all off and everything's going crazy. Yeah. And there's that that victory of, I'm a real boy, which has been parodied a million times, but nonetheless, absolutely brilliant. You get the happy ending that everybody was looking for. I want to talk about the characters here, starting with the title character. I think the question you need to ask yourself about Pinocchio is, is he likable? Because... He continues to go against his conscience in spite of the fact that he says he knows better. Is he a brat? Is he spoiled? The answer, in my opinion, is no. I just think he's childish because he has literally just been brought to life and this is a coming-of-age story and it does teach you who to trust and who not to trust. And I feel like... If he was too smart for his own good, I think you lose the heart of the story. I definitely agree with you there. And I've always found Pinocchio adorable. Like, 
you know, we've talked about the personality a little bit, but just the way that he's drawn, like with that little tuft of hair that moves once, you know, the blue fairy gives him life, um, you know, and his little nose and his big bright eyes. I just think he's so darn cute. Um, and I, I think that's also kind of an interesting commentary on parenting because, he is still so likable, but there are times where you just want to grab him and shake him and be like, no. And I have to imagine that that is what it's like for parents. It doesn't mean that you love your kid any less, but you do have to teach them right from wrong. And he's just so helpless most of the time. And some of that is a product of his own device, but this is a part of growing up and, and learning. And yes, it is frustrating when he does not listen to Jiminy Cricket, but I just find him to be so endearing. I do too. But I think it's also a product of Jiminy because he doesn't stick by him. And that was also something that was kind of weird to me watching it this time around because I love Jiminy. I always have. I think he's super charismatic. And this goes back to what we were talking about at the top of the show with that strong association of him in the parks. I'm watching it this time around and I'm like, you have one job. And every time Pinocchio screws up, you just leave him. Yeah, and I think that there's an underlying storyline here where it's more than just Geppetto getting his wish. It's more than Pinocchio learning the ways of the world and becoming a real boy. I feel that there is a certain amount of redemption in this film for Jiminy Cricket. Because we explained earlier that he was a sort of down-on-his-luck cricket when we first meet him. And, and I pointed out before that he was, I felt, selfish. And that selfishness sort of does rear its head a few times throughout the film when he's willing to just leave Pinocchio behind. And I understand why he's doing it. He wants Pinocchio to learn for himself, but there are times where Pinocchio is put in real danger purely because Jiminy is frustrated with him and he sort of doesn't want to deal with it anymore. But he gets his victory at the end as well where he is certified, for a lack of a better term, as a real conscience. And I think that... Jiminy Cricket learns a lot about himself and a lot about sticking by people and when to walk away and when you should be there for somebody that you care about so much. He had just as much to prove as Pinocchio did. And he was there for him when it counted because he said, I'll be live bait down there. And he went to Monstro anyway. That's when right. he should have tapped out. That's his character arc. Yes. And I think that Geppetto, we talked about him before, how he is sort of sad and he's lonely, but I think that that makes him endearing. And in spite of all of that, he's so into the idea of just jumping in and having fun and singing and dancing. And he has his little life with Cleo and with Figaro. And I think that from the jump, he is just one of the most likable characters ever put to film. Absolutely. By all intents and purposes, the thinking out loud and the constant talking should have gotten annoying, and it never does because he's so endearing. I mean, for me, I have a soft spot for old people no matter what, but 
I think he's he's just so cute and you you just feel so bad for him. You're totally rooting for that. And I think that's the other thing where if there's anything that's dislikable about Pinocchio, that's it. Because they've set up this relationship so well is that you're rooting for Pinocchio to do the right thing. So he is a real boy for Geppetto's sake. And that's where when Pinocchio is frustrating, that's why. Right. Because and, you need this to happen for Geppetto. And Geppetto, when Pinocchio goes missing, he immediately is going to set out, I need to find him. And just the way that he speaks about him is, oh, he was such a good boy. It's like you knew him for 12 hours. Yeah. But that's Geppetto. He, he loves him unconditionally. Best. He loves him unconditionally, and he sees the best in people. So let's contrast and go from the best of people to the worst of people. And I mean that in all of the right ways possible. And it's sort of the last character I want to talk about here is Honest John. I said it before, he's a sly fox. I love how he's drawn. But he has no limitations. And I think that because of that and because of what he does and how inherently evil he is... Because he is. When you think about what he's setting up for Pinocchio, and he knows what's going to happen, and he doesn't care anyway, so long as he's got that change jingling in his pocket, I think that he is one of the most underrated Disney villains of all time. Because I do think he is a Disney villain. And he's often forgotten about in those terms. And I think that's a shame. He's definitely a villain, but I don't know if he's the villain of this film um, because he's really just answering to people. He's answering to Stromboli. He's answering to the coachman. I don't even think Stromboli's the villain in this. I think he's an antagonist. I think Monstro is the villain of Pinocchio. I think that's how it's set up. Um, but you're right. As far as just being the driving force then yeah, that's absolutely honest, John. And he's super conniving, but he's he's a great character. It's like you you know we were talking about before. There's not a lot of dialogue, not a lot that needs to be set up with him. It it just all comes through in in the way that he speaks, in the way that he's selling Pinocchio on these ideas. Ready to move on to the music here. I do want to talk about Stromboli because we mentioned it before. Okay. We talked a little bit about the way that he was drawn. Um, similarly, you know, I think we see him come up again later in the Bellinati scene. I think that, uh, the chef pulls from him a little bit mm -hmm. and, and maybe that's just Disney stereotyping Italians, but I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I love how Italians are being represented here because Stromboli to me is hilarious. Yeah, he is. I, I love the constant yelling. I love that we don't even give him actual words. There's just like a bunch of noises and and fast talking and i think it's brilliant yeah i uh, i agree with you i've always liked stromboli i was never scared of him as a kid i know some kids were scared of stromboli i wasn't because i always just kind of found him to be silly but that's not meant to sa sound like i'm taking away from him he's still a great character in the movie you're right because he's very mean but it's so balanced with the comedy 
like when you think of the evil, you think more of Honest John. And because we do see the coachman after him, and I feel like the coachman is even worse. Yeah, because the coach, Stromboli wants Pinocchio because he's the stringless marionette. But the coachman wants any bad child he can get his hands on. And it's Honest John who just happens to pick Pinocchio. Right, because he knew that he could. Right. Moving on to the music here, we mentioned it at the top of the show here when we started discussing and breaking down the film. It opens with When You Wish Upon a Star, which is debatably the most important song in the history of the Walt Disney Company. I would certainly go so far as to put it in the top three. It's better than top five. It's top three. For sure. I I mean, what do you even say about it? It's When You Wish Upon a Star. It's iconic. It's so tied to the parks. Although not so much anymore because you took away wishes. Jackie's still salty about it. Jackie's always going to be salty about it. Um, no, it's an amazing song. And it's, you know, it's interesting... It's almost untouchable, really, because until recently, there's not too many covers of it. There's there's two. One is Idina Menzel, and it's like, after what she has done for this company as far as Frozen and being Elsa, it's like, yeah, if she wants to cover that song, let her have it. Uh, but the other cover is quite shocking. It's Gene Simmons from Kiss on his solo album when Kiss did their four solo albums. But I think even you can admit, and it, it's going to sound crazy to some people, but he sings it beautifully. You wouldn't expect it, but I mean, he's people who aren't like huge fans of Kiss, they're only going to know the big hits. They're not going to know a song like Beth. They're not going to know those ballads. They're not going to know Forever Right. Yeah. So I feel like... Not many people have heard him like sing, sing, but he does a really nice job. I mean, did he do as good a job as Idina? No. That's a hard no. But it's still a really, really wonderful, wonderful cover. Um, no, and no matter who's singing it, I mean, the lyrics. Probably one of my favorite lyrics in, in all of Disney is Fate Steps In and Sees You Through. I mean, how how poetic is that? This might be... The best Disney song not written by a Sherman brother. Alan Menken and Howard Ashman wrote amazing music. And I think that when, in my mind, when I think about the top five songs in the history of the Walt Disney Company, part of your world is on that list. But I think that this might be the best song not written by a Sherman brother. I'd have to agree with you. And that's an interesting bit of trivia, too, is that this was one of the only films to ever do it where it was nominated for the best Oscar for best original song and best score. And I don't think that they did that again until the combination of Mencken and Howard Ashman. Uh, right. I believe you're right. But, yeah, I mean, it's like you said, it's when you wish upon a star. What else do you want to say? It's absolutely beautiful. I love Little Wooden Head. Me too. I, th I think it's forgotten about. 
especially when when people think about the song from Pinocchio, what do they think about? They always think about When You Wish Upon a Star. But I love Little Wooden Head. I love the way that Geppetto brings life to Pinocchio, the way he personifies him. And that within itself, he's got like a boyhood charm to it and a smile and it's tongue-in-cheek when he has him kick Figaro and and he's like trying to teach Pinocchio a lesson and he's not even come to life yet but I just think it's a lot of fun it's interesting you say that you feel like people forget about it I think that has to do with the animation being so strong because that's my takeaway from this number and I again it's the way that it's drawn where he's getting tangled in himself and it's that sound editing of him clomping around, but it's it's really part of the song. Yes, because the way that he clomps around and he... It's on the beat. Yeah. It's, it's really a part of the music. It's just, the whole sequence is just so clever. Yeah, and it goes hand in hand. And then you have Jiminy Cricket's other song, which is Give a Little Whistle and Always Let Your Conscience Be Your Guide. Definitely a strong message here. This is another one of my favorite sequences in the film, though, um, because it's so clever. You know, Jiminy has established himself that he travels around singing. And what you don't realize is when he goes to sleep at Geppetto's house, he's curled up in the end of a violin. Um, And as he's walking around the workshop singing the song, he's using what he finds to make the music. So he slides down the violin and you get that really nice sound effect. Mm -hmm. And then uh, he starts jumping on the straw on the saw. Yes. And it, again, another sound effect. So it's so clever and it's almost like little wooden head in that you're using the environment to, to lend to the music. Yeah. I mean, you said it perfectly. Hi diddly D is the next song here which a lot of people will more commonly call it an actor's life for me, sung by Honest John. Promises of fun and fame and wealth. I mean, how better to prey on a naive child than to tell him you're going to be rich and famous and be an actor? And he pulls it off so well, and it's so unsettling how well he does it, but it's another earworm. What's amazing, too, is that, I mean, Pinocchio's just come to life and he's singing about fame and celebrity and like Pinocchio knows what none of these things are but it's sung so convincingly he goes with it it's this goes hand in hand with the character development yeah and I think that the way the lyrics are laid out and the way that you're able to talk about a watch of gold with a diamond chain and he makes everything rhyme when he's really just listing out the materialistic benefits of being famous again fantastic and then there are no strings on me um you talked about it before how it's more than just i'm the marionette with no strings but there are also now no strings on me i'm free to be what i want and i'm free to make my own decisions and i'm going to show the world that i was right in making this decision when he is so inherently wrong (laughs) this actually you know and maybe again this has to do with Jiminy and When You Wish Upon a Star being so tied to the parks, this is my standout number. Like when I think Pinocchio, this is the one that I think of. Maybe just because I love the character so much and, you know, it's just when he comes out on that stage and he attacks that first note and then he tumbles right down the stairs. It's 
it, it's not funny because you don't want to see him fall. But I think th- the moment is just so memorable because it's his his breakout standout moment. And then the song is just so darn catchy. And I think it always reminds me of Small World. And yeah. I remember the first time I wrote It's a Small World, I was kind of disappointed to not see more of the Pinocchio specific characters in there because they look similar to when you go through France and when you go to Russia, but they're not exactly what you see in Pinocchio. And I'm wondering now if that's why they tied the restaurant to the ride. You know how you have the overlook? Yes. And now the kids hold up the signs to the boat and they make you touch your nose or clap your hands or whatever it is. Right. I'm wondering if that's why they're, they're like right next door to each other. But um, anyway, yeah, this is, this is probably my favorite song. I mean, but again, that's that's casting aside when you wish upon a star because to me, that's a park song. Yeah, it's a fun tune. It's the, the way it plays off with the animation. Again, absolutely brilliant and beautiful. And um, uh, yeah, it's it's probably in my opinion, I think it's overshadowed by when you wish upon the star, and I don't mean that negatively, but um, it should be. It should be, but. You got anything else? Are you ready for a final synopsis here? Well, just what's amazing about the music to me is that it's done before the halfway point of the movie. Yes. Like, this is a, a musical, but I don't even... I, I think by probably the first third of the movie, you're done, and the music's out. Well, I think that has to do with the tone of the film shifting. Because... After you have There Are No Strings on Me, you have Pinocchio thrown in the cage, and then he's taken to Pleasure Island, and then he has to go save Geppetto and Cleo and Figaro from Monstro. I don't think that the fun and the whimsy of these musical numbers would have translated over if you continued something similar to them as the film went on. No, and you're right. I I don't want to see the donkey singing. I don't want to see Monstro singing. I think it would cheapen it. But it's just amazing when we're talking about how all these iconic songs that came from this movie, they're not spread out. Like when you think of something like one of your Renaissance films, like just picking one at random, fine, Little Mermaid, we were talking about it before. You have Part of Your World. You have Under the Sea. You have Kiss the Girl. And like one song is bigger than the next. Say like, with Aladdin, I yeah. mean, come on. You've got One Jump, then you've got Friend Like Me, then you've got Prince Ali, and then the cap is a whole new world. Yeah. Those... You've got a big song on average, like, every 15 minutes. Right, and then y- y- this kind of comes at you rapid fire, and then it's gone. Exactly. Final synopsis. What else can we say at this point? Um, I mean... I'm not going to give it a rare near perfect review because like I said before, there were a couple of instances where the animation was slightly less than on point. And I hate saying that because the animation is absolutely amazing, but there were those instances where it's like, you do notice that the whites of the eyes aren't colored in those wide shots. And even some of Jiminy's coloring is not consistent throughout. Um, 
I started noticing it, um, and I'm, I'm talking about there's different shades of green throughout the film, but I also started noticing it most when he goes to try and pick the lock and he takes the coat off. Yes. His pants are the same shade as his face, but you see the pants drawn, but it almost looks like he's Donald Ducking because the yeah. the shade is so similar. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of little things like that, but I mean, they're blemishes on an otherwise amazing film and when you put it up against something like the uh little wooden head scene or when they're walking through the village when he's on his way to school before he gets kidnapped those sequences are just so amazing i can completely overlook the minutia and you know for what it was at the time let's not overlook the fact that it was 1940 and this was only Disney's second feature film. You're also talking about putting this out during a war when, you know, the budget was stretched paper thin at this point. So things like that were going to happen. I think that this film holds up incredibly well, given its age. I think that for Disney's second go-around and only second to Snow White, when you watch those two films side by side, the advancements in technology, the advancements in animation, when you compare one to the other, is completely night and day. And to think that only three years separated those two films is nothing short of astounding. I actually believe that this film and it's it's not meant to sound like any film we talk about between Pinocchio and the end of Walt Disney's life is any less special in terms of the animation i think pinocchio is walt disney's crowning achievement in animation I was going to say, in animation, yes. I I wouldn't put this above Mary Poppins. No. But what he achieved story-wise, just weaving together this book that was released in sections and that he was able to string that together, you know, I think really the reason that the Blue Fairy keeps coming back, I think she's the big connector piece here. Um but not just the story. It's a technological achievement. It just looks stunning. And, you know, like I said, there were those few minor errors that I caught. But given what they were going through at the time, you can totally overlook them. And I loved it then. I love it now. And this is one where I know they're going to do it anyway. But, like, I kind of hope that they don't remake it. Because I, it's, it's just not going to have that same effect. To, to do a CGI Pinocchio, or what are you going to do? You're going to do a real marionette? That's going to be terrifying. Well, we're interested to know what you all have to say about 1940s Pinocchio. Is it your favorite film? Where is it on your list? Do you want to see it remade? You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, 
monorailradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. Hey guys, my name is Mike. I listen to Jackie and Sean's podcast every week on my commute into work. So I reached out to Jackie, and she helped me put together the perfect getaway. I did a four-night Disney cruise ship, and she was able to answer every question that I threw at her. She put together the perfect dates and an insurance plan that made the whole experience stress-free. She was able to help me with little tips and tricks, like you can get a Mickey Mouse bar delivered to you any time of the day. And I think that was a mistake, because now I put about 10, 15 pounds on. I'll definitely be using Jackie again in the future. Thanks for everything. So you can get in touch with me on any of our social media platforms at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week, this past Sunday, was the Oscars, and Disney took home a Oscar for Best Animated Feature, and that award went to Toy Story 4. For reasons unknown to us. Toy Story 4 beat out Missing Link, Klaus, I Lost My Body, How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. Now, Missing Link took home the Golden Globe this year, and we have not been shy about our feelings of Toy Story 4. We were open in our monorail in a minute, and eventually, I guess we're going to have to do a review of it on this show. I'm just not in any rush to do it anytime soon. Yeah, you already know we don't like it. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Then you got to listen to us talk about it for an hour. We're not going to rush to that. But I don't think... My bias against the movie aside, I don't think Toy Story 4 was better or more beautifully animated than Frozen 2. I'm I'm still shocked that Frozen got no love other other than in the song category. And it didn't win there. No. But what did win was Adele Dazeem's big old comeback. <laughs> I was hoping I, I thought one of two things was going to happen was that either they were going to give John Travolta a chance to redeem himself, which I'm glad that they did not, and they just had her buddy Josh Gad introduce it. Um, but I loved that performance. I thought that that was so cool to include all of the different Elsa voices from around the world. They had Aurora perform doing the siren voice in the background. Um, just a big female empowerment number. It was great. It was really well done, and good on Josh Gad for saying... Uh... Her name is pronounced the way it is spelled. Exactly the way it is spelled. You can always rely on Josh Gad for good comedy. But regardless of our feelings of Toy Story 4, congratulations to the cast and crew and the animators over at Disney for your Oscar-winning film. Thank you guys so much for joining us this week. Don't forget to subscribe to Monoreal Radio on your podcast platform of choice give us a review give us a rating you know that can only help spread the word and spread the love of the show and you can do that as well by sharing links to the show with any of your friends or family who love disney perhaps they love pinocchio it's their favorite film maybe you went and saw it with your grandparents and you'd love for them to hear our opinion of the show and again don't forget you can also follow us on twitter instagram and facebook at monoreal radio and you can write to us whenever you like monoreal radio at gmail.com 
Thank you guys so much for joining us. Please keep an eye on the social media and on your podcast platform next week because, spoiler and teaser, we have something very, very, very special for you next week. And that's the most I can say about it. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.